I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes. In the head. I was tired of hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Did you tell me you built a time machine? What about the Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Monday, June 30th, and welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I'm your co-host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 18-year young adult survivor of brain cancer. And I'm Annie Goodman, your co-host of the Stupid Cancer Show and young adult breast cancer fighter. You're right tonight. Yeah, it's a little brain fart. Yeah, it's okay. It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year, so... Got cancer under 40? Suck, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world, one chemo infusion at a time. I'm Kenny Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners here on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, iHeartRadio Talk, or listen to the archives on stupidcancershow.org. On tonight's show, Stupid Kidney Cancer, renal cell carcinoma is a very rare cancer that represents the most common form of kidney cancer and is occurring more frequently in young adults. Join us as we welcome renal cell carcinoma survivor Lauren Hassel and Dr. Carl Bischoff, board-certified urologic oncologist and renal cell carcinoma specialist shed light is under-discussed orphan disease. Survivor Spotlight on Stephen Robinson. And I'm Maureen Sweet, Manager of Programs and Operations here at Stupid Cancer, and I'll be live tweeting throughout the broadcast at Chemodex. So send me your questions and feedback at any time using the hashtag SC Radio. Hello. What up? Danny gets a prize for that <laughs> mouthful. Yeah, yeah. I felt, I think, uh, you know, we got in here a little last second. I feel, I felt like a little. That's okay. Uh, I think we all did, but it's cool. We'll get a rough day. Yeah. Yeah, we had a focus group. Yeah, but we're cool now. <laughs> we're focused. Mm. What's going on, folks? Kenny, you had an interesting road trip recently. Yes, Matthew, I did, as I punched my microphone. <laughs> uh, I took the entire contents of this room, besides the desk that we are sitting around, to a uh, facility in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, Carol Media. They are now filling all of the stupid cancer store orders, folding, packing, and shipping, as only they can do so much better than us. So you just gave birth to not having any children anymore. You're an empty nest. I, yes, my 
T-shirts went to college. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and now uh, I have more time in my day to perhaps go back to school and get my master's. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'll let you do. Yes. Well, I was actually, when I came in here, I noticed that all of the uh, merch was MIA, and I was like, where did it all go? <laughs> and then, I, then the next thought was, what's Kenny going to do all day? I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess I'd like to clarify that I don't just fold T-shirts all day long. <laughs> but you do love doing it. I do, I do. Um, it, so, it stems from a, a, a past of manual labor. And Mallory Rivera joining us tonight in studio. Hello. Yes, hello. So was that your first impression of Kenny? He likes to fold T-shirts? Very specifically fold T-shirts. Yes. It, and there was very, yes. For there were very specific impression. measurements. The, 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 the J-Crew fold had to be <laughs> the, the wash and fold. Yes. People. Uh, I'm, using, I'm not using a pronoun. I'm just saying people. Uh, they person. taught me, the persons taught me how to fold very well. Um, so after, I, after yes. I worked in the Old Navy for like a month, and I learned how to fold perfectly. Yeah. And no. that never leaves you. So now you're, no. now, So my dad likes to joke that the, uh, life begins when the kids go to college and the dog dies. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Both or? That's my dad. Yeah, that's my dad. Both, both, both. So, yeah, so Kenny, uh, congratulations on uh, birthing the collegiate version yeah. of your e-commerce. Well, there will still be, there'll still be a aspect of inventory management from afar sure that i will milk i just want to say that i'm really happy you're not going to fold shirts anymore and yeah. lick, lick stamps and make labels thank you nor nor will any of us which is nice well we'll do less of it i do yeah, miss looking at everything and being like oh this is cute right I've been yeah. Yeah. i no I'm longer i'll <laughs> never have that given away all of our inventory. Yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll no longer have anxiety about the actual physical number of things and and having sales where we sell much more than we actually have because right. Uh, someone has shopped books looking. You mean I steal stuff? That's okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but you have another road trip coming up soon, too. You're going to Warp Tour. I do. I'm, I'm leaving Sunday for seven days, um, six stops, going as far south as Camden, New Jersey. I'm going up to Buffalo-ish, and I'm going to Boston-ish, and everywhere in between. What qualifies as Boston-ish? Uh, it's like Mansfield. Oh. It's like 45 minutes from the city. Okay. That would so be Boston. It's ish. Yes. Ish. Uh, so I'm excited. I'm getting a, uh, a Chevy Suburban wrapped so that people will see our car on the highway and be excited and get some awareness. You ever driven a car that big? That thing's that Well, I drove the box truck last week. Yeah, but that's... That, I, 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 had a 90, yeah. I had a 1994 Ford Bronco. That thing was... Okay, okay. I saw a commercial on the news for it. It was involved in that highway chase. Yeah. I instantly wanted one. Exactly. Uh, it is large. I feel like I should be driving an Uber. Right. So people flag me down. You, uh, you should totally register for Uber. I was going to make uh, my girlfriend sit in the back seat. <laughs> <laughs> Put a little hat on. Right. You know. Drive me Daisy. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, I'll be out and about, and uh, we recently found out that we'll be MIA next week. Yeah, we'll be uh, topping the show off uh, basically no show next week because both Kenny and I will be out of the office. That's a great yeah. realization. Yeah, I know. Like, we all realize that today. Like, <laughs> no show next week. <laughs> but we didn't realize it next Monday, so that's um, pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good. Pretty yeah. good, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Well, We've done worse. And uh, I think I mentioned this on the air, but I won't be here next week because I'll be in <gasps> London. 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 I'm so jealous. Yeah. I wanted to go to London this week to see Coldplay. I can't believe it's because it's playing in London this week. <laughs> oh, no. oh. 
and my friends and I tried looking up tickets, and my friends were like, tickets are like 1500 bucks out of Kennedy. It's just for this week. Yeah. And, of course, being an idiot, my friend, okay, this is actually a really funny quick story. Only 1500 bucks. She said, um, well, it's usually like 700 in the summer. Anyway, whatever. She said, well, maybe um, it's more expensive because it's the 4th of July. I said, yes, Americans go to, go to the U.K. And we're like, F you, we're independent. <laughs> no. And then my other, another friend was like, it's Wimbledon. Oh, okay. And then that was that explained why the tickets were so high. Right. So I'll have to go see Coldplay some other time. That's They're great. great. And the World Cup, which I'm not following. All I know is that I look at my phone and it tells me who wins. So. Well, the U.S. has a big game tomorrow. We... You, you like to call it falling with style. That's how we got through the elimination round. Yeah, because um, we advanced. We so did someone just lost enough. enough. Right. We did just enough to get through. That's um, how I got the job here. <laughs> and we'll be playing at 4 p.m. tomorrow. So if you have any menial work to do while, you know, that's what I'm doing tomorrow. I think that's what I'm going to do with my hands. Well, so when okay. I get home from chemo, nice. that'll be a good yeah. way to uh, recover. Yeah, so we'll be playing Belgium. Go American team. Go we, don't fighting, have, we don't have like go a... Go fighting chocolates. And chocolate? No, we're not supposed to cheer for them. Belgium? That's wrong. Oh. Be Don't fight waffles. Oh, God, you'll just have to stay in London. <laughs> yeah. You've been excommunicated. Don't fight endives. <laughs> okay, great. We're doing well. Belgian endives? No. Okay. No, I've got nothing. Three days. hours later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. and just to wrap up, the uh, I got was in Chicago. I met with our good friends at Give Forward. Um, I met with our good friends at... Um, the Anka Fertility Consortium, we had a wonderful meeting uh, where we had Omen Cancer Fund showed up and uh, the Young Survivor Coalition sent a bunch of people there. About 25, 30 people came. It was really mm-hmm. nice. And I was in town to speak at the Association of Community Cancer Centers Think Tank. Ooh. Sounds and fancy and I, smart. I was okay. the patient. I was token. I was the patient. They invited me there to be the patient. Yes, you represented all of them. I was like, well picture 17 million cancer survivors standing behind me, <laughs> and that's my job today. But it was good. Their challenge, of course, is that community cancer centers are largely state-funded. Mm-hmm. They don't have the same budgets. They don't have the same capacities and abilities to govern and manage and follow whatever it needs to get done, and, and how do we resolve that on not just a state level but a, a national level. So very interesting stuff because um, 80% of all new cancer diagnoses are made in community cancer centers, 80%. Not everyone goes to Andy Anderson or Sloan Kettering or Dana-Farber. They are in the middle of nowhere, and hopefully they get access and quality care. So uh, kudos to ACCC. Uh, I know they do want to come back and exhibit and speak uh, at CancerCon because they were there in 2013. But uh, good stuff. And then I'm... Uh, the meeting, I also had a meeting with um, a couple of cool ad agencies, which are really excited about Instapier and Stupid Cancer. By the way, Instapier wrapped up its uh, Indiegogo. We raised $26,000, which mm-hmm. is amazing. And uh, the website is back to instapier.org. And, again, it's something cool. It is the app you wish you had mm-hmm. when you were sick. That's the new, uh, what, I, that's what I'm saying. I'm sticking to it, and that's, that's what I said. Great. We done? We can go home now. We can go home now. All right. Okay. Great. This has been a great show, everyone. All right. Good night, everyone. <laughs> All right. Here in the Survivor Spotlight tonight, Stephen Robinson is a 25-year cancer survivor, first diagnosed in 1989 at the age of nine with T-cell lymphoma. He recently welcomed his first child, and that put a lot of things into perspective for him, and I recently ran into him on LinkedIn, and we're welcoming him on the show tonight. Please welcome Steve Robinson. Hey, Steve. Okay. Hey, Matthew. Hey Annie, thank you for having me. Oh, it's it's a pleasure. I'm glad we were able to make it work. It was it's always interesting when 
the stars align and I meet people online randomly and it, it uh, inspires me and you guys, um, just very cool. I'd love you to just start from scratch and tell us, you know, clearly we all remember being nine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, well, it's yeah. very interesting that most survivors remember exactly the day and time when they got cancer, no matter how old they were, right? <laughs> but, right. Um, you know, when I, at about the age of nine, I was diagnosed with uh, T-cell lymphoma in Binghamton, New York, uh, non-Hodgkin's. And, and, you know, that at that time in that community was kind of, uh, you know, it, it really drove the community wild, you might say. I mean, that, it, at that time, it just wasn't really big public knowledge when things like that happened. So, uh, you know, the community kind of rallied around me, but, um, you know, we did, I did face, you know, two and a half years of chemo. I had, um, you know, I had a, a local TV show um, made about my family and the struggle of going through you know, having cancer, and uh, and I spent, you know, several years after that pretty active in the community going through, you know, American Cancer Society, Relay for Life, things along those lines. But uh, in the beginning there, it, it was, you know, it was kind of a new thing for the community, and it was interesting to see, you know, the different things I dealt with at school, such as, you know, I was the only kid wearing a hat at school. Um, you know, it, it definitely puts you in that, you know, I was the only one really sick at school. So, you know, being able to relate to that over the years, it was definitely something that, uh, you know, affected me as I grew older. Let's put it that way. Well, yeah, and that, that speaks to the fact that what we've seen in the growth of the young adult cancer movement is over a third of our community are long-term childhood cancer survivors. So they have the horror stories, the war stories of what it was like to go through grammar school or intermediate school or high school, bald, sick, out of school, missing class, and those stick with you. Those are experiences that you take with the rest of your life, and then you're, at, you're just in the same pool as us with issues in your 20s. How, how is that? Uh, I, I, I mean, I see you've got a lot of local press and attention, and, and that, that's great, but at the end of the day, your social life, your upbringing, your friends, can you talk us through uh, the wonder years? Yeah, um, my parents, especially in the beginning of my family, were my support system. Um, I had great friends, and I mean just, uh, you know, that were my circle of protection, I would pretty much say, throughout throughout high school. And that, and that would be, I mean, just to name a couple of names, Mike Schulteis, Steve Asina, those were guys that, you know, rallied around me all through those formative years and whatnot. But, um, you know, I, I was able to play sports as I got maybe four or five years out from uh you know, having cancer, and I was able to play varsity football and things along those lines. Um, but when I got to that age of 18, 19, and just even though I had support systems, I still faced going for yearly checkups. I still faced dealing with cancer on a, on a daily basis. And I think as I entered my early years and going to college, I made a mental decision to kind of and I don't advocate it for everybody here that's surviving to kind of check out of it. I, I decided that I wanted to leave Binghamton, go away to school, and that's how I ended up in Florida. But, um, you know, that, that early years and, and coming out of it, it, it just almost it, it puts you in a mindset of you're tired of dealing with it on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, I, I think that there are better support systems today, and, and part of it is stupid cancer in your organization that's allowing people to get together and communicate about these, you know, issues that survivors are facing. 
So I have a very 80, late 80s, early 90s question to ask you. So you were granted a Make-A-Wish, and I'll let you tell all of our listeners about it because it sounds like it was pretty cool. Well, early 80s, early 90s, what was actually big at that time? It was Nintendo. So I, made a, I saw a Nintendo Mauer magazine when I was about 9 or 10 years old and made the conscious decision. That seems like a good idea to go to Nintendo headquarters because I read an article in there about how another kid had gone. So I was like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. So I went out there for three days. The organization was great out in Seattle, Washington. Gave us a bunch of gifts and games. And, uh, you know, at that time I was the, uh, the king of Binghamton, New York, for uh, going and getting able to go to Nintendo headquarters. Did they teach you how to beat uh, Super Mario Brothers? I think I'd already gotten it at that time, but uh, oh, okay. I, they Mighty actually gave me, an early cop- they gave me an early copy of Super Mario 3, so I guess that was good. Oh, man. Wow. So I, I, I went to Binghamton. Actually, Kenny spent a semester, my co-founder here in New York, went, spent a semester in Binghamton. It, it, it was an interesting uh, city to go to. I was there at the height of the Depression from, like, 92 to 96 when IBM left and things were falling apart. But Vestal and uh, Johnson City were kind of thriving and growing. Did you go through, like, was that, did that affect your, your family or, or your uh, sustainability? Was there anything about access to health care in the city those years? Yeah, I actually never received any health care um, in Binghamton. I actually was, I, I was traveling the entire time for my diagnosis to uh, Syracuse, New York, where, they have um, 5C, it's called, um, a childhood oncology unit. Um, you know, I, the access to health care, even as I was growing up, there was just, it was almost non-existent or not the best treatment possible. Right. I mean, I bear yeah. Route 81 probably more than most people would ever want to, but I don't envy you having to travel up there. <laughs> Yeah, it was definitely uh, definitely an experience, but I give all the credit to, you know, my parents made that trip, you know, biweekly to get me up there for treatments and then post that for, you know, uh, checkups as needed. So along your journey, you, I know you had mentioned that you saw another cancer getting on the Nintendo, but was that the closest you came to finding another, <laughs> like, like single-digit or, or grade school student with cancer? You know, it... Along my journey, I've met some other kids over, you know, that I've been, especially in my high school years when I was playing sports and doing those things, that I was able to, uh, you know, peer-to-peer have, you know, talk with, communication with. Um, you know, as I've gotten older, I've found other young adults and other organizations that, you know, I my child that I've had recently that we just mentioned has got me a little bit more open to, uh, sharing some of my experiences and sharing, you know, what what I've gone through. I think I spent some of my early 20s um, almost private about my experience. And, you know, as I've gotten older, I don't necessarily think that was the direction to go, if that makes sense. So obviously your 20s is a time when you start dating yeah. and putting yourself out there. Did you yeah. tell people about your diagnosis when you were dating them with, or did you wait a long time? Um, well, I think with, uh, you know, with a lot of the, uh, cancer survivors with port scars and things like that, um, I, I was open with it immediately with anybody that I was getting into a serious relationship with. And, you know, it, it, it was always something that I either glossed over or I didn't go into the full, you know, uh, experiences that I had, but I, I definitely was always in my close circle, very, 
um, you know, I, I, I would explain, you know, some of the things I went through. But, you know, there, there's just, I think, young adult survivors in particular that, I, that I've ran to. There's almost a lack of perspective there. Like, you can share your experiences from 10, 15 years ago, but it, it's tough to be out for that to be relatable, if you know what I mean. Right. So, uh, all right, so we, we do talk about how dating relationships, you know, those are clearly, they're hard to deal with enough when you're not sick in your 20s, but fertility right. is clearly an issue of significant relevance, and it's, it's something that is of the utmost concern when you're diagnosed in your teens, 20s, and 30s, but when you're diagnosed at nine, there really is no way to bank sperm at that age or, or, or preserve fertility. Is that correct? Especially correct. And, and, you know, yeah, especially in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, 5C had a program in Syracuse where when I was about a year or two post, um, you know, treatment, I would go up for a yearly physical or, you know, every six months physical in the beginning. And it was almost like a, a cutting edge um, post-treatment, you know, uh, experiment where they were like basically just doing physicals to see if there were any effects from the chemotherapy. And every six months, I, I think I was reminded about my fertility issues all, that could potentially arise from probably about the age 12 all the way up. And I think that was part of the reason um, why as I entered into college that I just decided I couldn't go to these anymore. Um, I just mentally, you know, that's always something that I think is down on the surface is, you know, what's my future fertility like? What's my long-term effects like going to be? And, you know, that's something that I just, I, I suppressed it for a little while until I finally met, you know, the woman that I was going to marry. And I decided, you know, at that point in time, you know, I really need to get tested. I need to find out exactly, you know, what's going on here so that I can, you know, explain it to her and be able to plan for the future. So I think every survivor deals with that on some fundamental level. It's just below the surface of, you know, what's that, what are these long-term effects going to be? And not only that, but what is my fertility and how do I deal with that? So, you know, I, I consider myself one of the lucky ones. I mean, I sweated it out in the Florida sun in a, uh, in a car opening the results to see if I was fertile or not. Uh, Cause I, I just felt that, you know, that, that had a lot of, uh, that had a lot of uh, dependence on what my future was going to be. And, and also I, I had just built it up to that point. So, I mean, I think all young adults are dealing with that just below the surface and it's awesome that this is something that you're focused on. So your, your wife's name is Brittany and you were dating her. And I was reading in what you had sent us that you, uh, this was obviously like, a huge trepidation, my, you know, figuring out if you could be a father to her if you married her. Were you considering not wedding her if you couldn't bear children? I don't think I got that far mentally. I think I, I knew that I wanted to propose to Brittany, and that was my driving factor to finding out the truth. I know that my wife, um, she's a teacher, and I know that at the end of the day, if, if we had gone the other way, I think, I know for a fact, it wouldn't have mattered to Brittany. She's just a wonderful woman. And I think that, you know, I, I personally just had put so much into that, you know, I just need to know so I can inform her. And I think, I don't think it would have changed, it would have not definitely changed my decision either way. But I felt that my partner had to, had the right to know what my potential health issues could be before we went down that road. 
and now you are a dad. So why don't you tell us about that experience? Yeah. You have a one-month-old? Uh, yeah, she's seven weeks now. Um, she was born May 9th. Uh, her name's Ellie Kate, and what a crazy experience, let me tell you. Um, just going through, you know, the the entire pregnancy and then, you know, actually the birth of Ellie has just, it's been a mind-bending experience, which I'm sure any new parent can relate to. Uh, it's just put a lot of things in perspective for me. I, I've started to think about, you know, how I could have a more active voice in the community. I, I've always, you know, taken a when I've noted somebody that might need some help or I've noted, you know, a specific story of a young adult might be going through an issue that I either know or through a peer of a peer, I've always reached out and, you know, talked to them on a one-on-one basis. And I think, you know, this, this last year has really gotten me farther along and, you know, wanting to help more. So, you know, just being a dad is an amazing experience. And I think fertility issues for young adult survivors, across the board, this is something that needs to be preserved. And not only preserved, but there needs to be extra study and, you know, assistance in making sure that either we can preserve it if needed or, you know, supporting them with services that allow them to adopt or, you know, look at other options that are out there for them. But just having peers that are dealing with fertility issues like that, it's not an easy thing to share. And I think that's, you know, to reach out and talk to somebody about your you know, potential fertility issues. It's not easy. And I think it's it's good to be able to have that communication system. And now I know that you're really into mentoring. So how did you, when you were young, when did you first meet a adult, someone as a young adult like cancer? And also how did you find out about stupid cancer? Well, actually, I found out about stupid cancer, actually, from um, about two years ago. I was, I'm a big New York Giants fan. And about two years ago, I saw a young adult who had, his name is Adam. He had, his make-a-wish, actually, was to meet the New York Giants. And I had seen that uh, he did, like, a halftime talk with them, and he was with the coach and whatnot, with uh, Tom Coughlin, and I'd seen that, and I reached out to Adam and started talking to him, and I saw that he was involved in stupid cancer, and that's really how I, uh, through Facebook, and that, that's really how I started it finding the organization and looking at that. But as a, as a young adult, I think one of the biggest peers that I had, his name was uh, John Putney. And he was actually, I didn't find out until we actually were in college at Hartwick that he had um, battled cancer as a, as a kid as well. And, uh, you know, we were on the football team together, which made that even crazier. Um, so being able to just have that one person to talk to for those years and be able to share experiences, I think that was the, uh, it, it was very unique. It, it was great being able to have that. And, I guess, I mean, one of my biggest issues, it took me seven years to know that I wasn't the only college student that ever got cancer. And right. that sucked in and of itself, but it kind of still happens today. And you and I are, are hell-bent in the sense of that, you know, no one alone and mentoring and peer support on a one-to-one basis. There are a lot of groups that do some great, one-to-one peer matching, Imam and Angels being at the top of the list there. But I know that you are aware of our mobile app, Instapeer, that's coming to market this fall. And yes. it is going to hopefully fill that void where ideally we'll get people in the app and then they'll be able to meet other people like us, regardless of age or gender or side effect or fertility or whatever. Um, 
But what is it that you would say to someone else? How is a mentor, you know, every person's experience is different. Uh, what's your message to those that you do meet now today? I think the message is, and the message that I've always said is, you're not alone, first of all. Second of all, you can get through this. And third, you can definitely live your life. And that, that I think is the most important message to get out there. But don't be stubborn like me and make sure that you get your checkups when needed. Actually, and that speaks to, we. It, it, just interestingly enough, we had a, um, a focus group here in the office before the show started about prevention. And it's mm-hmm. a very heated conversation when you've already been diagnosed, because it's kind of like, well, what did I do to get it in the first place? Could I have prevented it? You, were, you got it at nine. There's nothing you could do to prevent it. I was born. <laughs> right, exactly. Annie is genetically predisposed to it. Um, but what are your thoughts on that? Like, do you have, I assume you have friends now that are not cancer survivors, and are they even aware of cancer? Are they scared of it? Like, it's just an interesting a discussion point now when we're talking about prevent cancer, but how could we have done that, and is it a fair thing to talk about? Well, I think, and that's a great point, Matt. Um, I think that, you know, one of the things that it, it, it's always an underlying feel like I, fear. I think I'm getting to the age group now, I'm 34, where, you know, the adults that are around me are all having kids. And I think, you know, there, there's always this underlying fear of, as I'm getting older, what can I do to prevent you know, obviously not smoking is one. I mean, that's the biggest one. But, you know, there's, I think there's always this underlying fear of what can I do for prevention? What can I do for, you know, exercise? And I, and I frankly have came to the point now where I think the message is take care of yourself, take care of your family, work out, try to eat right, do the best that you can on a day-to-day basis. And that, that's all you can really ask for. You can't predict what's going to happen two, three years down the line all you can do is try to make smart decisions each day. And, and that's really what I think the message is. Yeah, I, I, I think that's very fair, very reasonable. And, and you know, it's, it's kind of like try to do your best and not be stupid and hope, hope things work out. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's, that's part of it. And, you know, I also think it's, it's not, not allowing yourself to get so um, – and I mean, this is from somebody who's a survivor. It's just not allowing yourself to get so bogged down in, am I going to get, you know, what can I do to prevent this? And I, I think getting too far bogged down, you'll just drive yourself crazy with that anxiety. Um, I think the best thing you can do is, like I said, try to eat right, eat good foods, you know, work out, spend time with your family, do good things every day. And, you know, hopefully we can get to the point where, you know, through medical research and the things that are advancing now, hopefully we can get to the point where if you get cancer, you get a shot, and then it goes away. That's what we're all working for, right. too. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Stephen, I want to really thank you for uh, coming on the show um, tonight, sharing your story. Congratulations on fatherhood. That re- We love happy endings. We love good stories. Uh, enjoy your diapers. Enjoy everything that comes with them. My kids just turned four. <laughs> Um, it gets better. <laughs> I promise you it gets yeah, better. Thank you. Um, all right, Steve Robinson, 25-year cancer survivor, diagnosed in 1989 at age of nine. God bless you, my friend. Take care of yourself. Enjoy your life. Steve thank Robinson. you very much. Thank you. All right, Kenny, now the news. Hello, 
I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. We have some stupid cancer meetups happening in Minneapolis, Culver City, Rancho Cucamonga, Modesto, Raleigh, and Durham. So a lot of North Carolina and a lot of California. Good stuff, We also Kenny. have an honorable mention of the UC Irvine, an event for young adult cancer patients and survivors with our very own Dr. Leonard Sender. And that is happening on Friday, July 18th in Irvine. Very nice. Check it out. Okay, cancer is lonely, period. We've got the cure. It's called Instapeer, our forthcoming free mobile app that will bring instant anonymous peer support to anyone affected by cancer. Visit instapeer.org to watch our video, learn more about the project, and consider making a donation so you can be part of history. Instapeer.org. Very cool, Matt. It's always a good time to stock up on your stupid cancer gear. Visit stupidcancerstore.org anytime and stay nice and cool with all of our new products and styles to choose from. We've got an awesome skateboard for all your summer needs. Don't forget about Flip, the cancer bird, our latest plushie mascot. That's stupidcancerstore.org. Be proud. Wear stupid cancer. And that is your Stupid Cancer News. All right, going to be a good show coming up. Let's bring in our guest. Dr. Carl Bishop is a physician at Urology Austin, a large urology practice located in Austin, Texas. He focuses on the treatment of early as well as advanced cancers of the urogenital system. He completed his surgical training at the University of Florida and the Urologic Oncology Fellowship at Vanderbilt University. And he has expertise in robotic surgery, as well as traditional, laparoscopic, and major open surgery. And joining him is Lauren Hassel, who I met at the OMG Cancer Summit in Las Vegas. She's a stage one renal cell carcinoma driver, about six months post-op from a Da Vinci robotic laparoscopic partial nephrectomy. God bless you, Gesundheit, my new band name. <laughs> Dr. Bischoff removed the mass from her, 3.8 centimeters. Uh, it's called German Grade One Clear Cell. We're going to have a really good conversation with Dr. Carl Bishop and Laura Hassel on uh, renal cell carcinoma. Folks, thanks for joining us. Welcome. No problem. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having yeah. me. I'm very oh, excited. <laughs> yeah, this is all you. You you kind of bum rushed me in Vegas and said, I want to do a show on this. There's no one here. You're right. It is a <laughs> and well done. Well done. It is a uh, one of the grossly under-discussed cancers that I actually have no experience with. We've never done a show on them. I know a few people with this disease, but I'm really excited to spend the next 20 minutes or so talking about what this is, how it happens, and you've heard the tale end of the, uh, the last interview. We had a focus group before um, the, uh, the show tonight about cancer prevention from the perspective of the general public versus the people who already have it. What does it mean? What does it look like? Where does risk come in? Where does genetic testing come in? And I'd like to, you know, we can steer the conversation in that direction from both your perspectives. But first and foremost, Lauren, what Mm -hmm. is this? How do you get this? What what do you talk about? Does your doctor say you have the flu? Come back later. Tell us what's going on in your life, in your Um, story. In my story, I was uh, your average 30-year-old independent woman plowing through life, trying to make money, to pay my bills, you know, I mean, I, I don't have one of those uh, great career where you make a lot of money. I have one of those uh, heartfelt careers that I love, and uh, I do because I love what I do. So, uh, 
I was just working, and I, in a a new relationship also, about four months in, and woke up in the middle of the night with some severe, severe pain in my abdomen, and went to the ER. Long story short, it was a gallstone, and, you know, they come in, they did an ultrasound, and they say, well, you have a gallstone, a really large one, and it's large, lodged in your gallbladder, but you also have this suspicious solid mass. And th- I didn't really understand quite what that meant. Like, I'm like, suspicious? Like, what is that, you know? <laughs> How suspicious? Like, is this bad? And they're like, you really need to get it checked out. So, you know, I went through... I I called my general practitioner, who I've seen for, you know, since I was 13. You know, I've uh, gone to the doctor over the years. I'm not one of those people that doesn't go to the doctor. I'm one of those people that goes to the doctor probably too much. You know, I mean, I really felt like I was pretty diligent. Diligent. Um, Sorry, I'm a little nervous. Um, But anyway... um, it's, it just really was a shock. And uh, my my called me with uh, the results of the MRI, and he told me, you need to see a urologist immediately. Uh, and that was pretty scary to have my doctor call me personally with my results and tell me, if you can't get in this week, call me, and I'll call them back and <laughs> make sure that you get in, like, immediately. And so I kind of went from being completely fine um, in a mere a matter of months being bedridden uh, in a hospital bed um, anemic and and kind of like with tubes everywhere I had a catheter for a straight week and uh, a urinary stint and just all kinds of unpleasantries um, <laughs> but uh, I don't want to be too graphic <laughs> But, it's okay. We probably uh, it all. Uh, I just have one question. When they found the gallstone, do they leave the mass in your body? Yes. Um, because, okay. yeah, they, the, how we decided to treat it was the gallstones were causing me pain. The tumor was completely asymptomatic. Um, it, 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 I had no symptoms at all, really. Uh, I had high blood pressure, which I've had for... Many years, it's kind of genetic, and I've also been overweight for many years. So, you know, that's not something that would they would have thought would have been caused by that, but it could have played a part, I guess. And um, I was also a smoker. So, you know, the, that could have been easily attributed to that, that. But I did have blood in my urine, but it was so microscopic, I couldn't see it with the naked eye. They didn't see it until after they already knew tumor was there. So, um, so let's bring I, I Dr. Bischoff back because I, I, I yeah. want to just go through the, the perspective of the uh, prescribing physician who is discovering all this. Clearly, you know, uh, urologic oncology is a very nuanced uh, medical art tying into nephrology and all other body parts unknown and known in the region. Um, have, have, is this? I, I know this is a renal cell carcinoma is the most common form of, of kidney cancer. Uh, is this something you typically see 
in young women Lauren's age, Dr. Bischoff? No, it's it's not. Um, uh, typically, you see you know kidney cancer, renal cell carcinoma. You know, we just basically call it kidney cancer for, for most folks, and, and sort of they get the picture. But so kidney cancer. Um, is typically seen in, in over the age of 60 or so. So it's typically not seen in people younger than 40 because most of the time um, kidney cancers are due to what Lauren's saying is environmental factors. So, so smoking is the biggest risk factor, so usually people that are 30 years old haven't had a chance uh, to smoke enough because <laughs> it takes you know, smoking a pack a day or so. Um, and I remember from smoking years ago, I think there's around 20 cigarettes in a pack, but I think a pack a day for 10 years is where we know that the risk goes up. And so usually someone, you know, some people will smoke that much by the age of 30, but it really takes a little bit longer usually to develop it. So it's very rare. The way she presented this is um, sort of almost classic for, for what we see now. We, we do CAT scans for people that get in car accidents now. I mean, it's hard to go to the emergency department, and Lauren knows this firsthand. It's hard to go to the emergency department and not get a CT scan. It's very rare that you go there for anything and, and you don't get one of your head, your chest, everything, which I think is not necessarily a bad thing if you look at it from my standpoint, from a cancer standpoint. Had Lauren not had gallbladder issues um, and never went to the emergency room, she, I probably would have seen, met her when it was too late. And I see that. I see 38-year-old, 45-year-olds that have metastatic. It's so sad, but they come in with metastatic renal cell and it's not curable. And so we know they will die. Um, and so the name of the game is if you catch it early, um, it's curable. So Lawrence, you know, should be cured, 98, 99% plus, you know, so that's great. But the way she was presented is classic in that we, define, we, uh, we, we, we see the tumor, we diagnose the tumor incidentally, meaning we had no idea it was there. They came in for gallbladder issues, colon issues, indigestion, you name it, car accident, they come in, get a CAT scan, and then we see it. And so we've seen a trend in the last 10 years or so, 15 years, that we're seeing less and less people with bigger tumors. They're, they're smaller, more operable, so we're curing more people now than we used to. And Dr. Bischoff, what so is, after surgery, yeah. what is the typical treatment for someone who has the disease? I know you said that stage 4 is incurable, but, you know, say someone comes in like a stage, an earlier stage, what else would you do for them besides uh, you know, surgery. Well, um, kidney cancer in, in her in her case, when they ca- when someone comes in w- with a tumor that's confined to the kidney, so we, you know, people always wonder stage, and it's sort of different with with each tumor um, type. But for kidney cancer, stage one means that the tumor is just in the kidney. So her kidney tumor allowed us. It was very tricky with the location of her tumor and and the size. Is almost where we couldn't just take the tumor out, but because she was so young. We said, well, you know, we should try to save her kidney because she's only 30. And so the chance of her having another tumor down the road is, 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 is possible. Maybe, she, maybe there's some underlying reason as to why she had it so young. But if the tumor is confined to the kidney, where we, whether we just take the tumor out, like in Lauren's case, or we take the kidney, if it hasn't gone anywhere, that's it. Um, if it sort of broke through the confines of the kidney, so it's not really in the lungs or in the lymph nodes. They're at a little bit increased risk of having uh, spread of disease down the road. So there's trials to sort of treat patients in this uh, category, which we call sort of stage two. They're sort of lo- locally advanced, 
not necessarily metastatic lymph nodes, we treat them with what's called immunotherapy. Most people just say chemotherapy because that's what they're used to saying and hearing, but it's, it's, it's actually immune therapy that modulates our immune and promotes our immune system. And so the, that's a better way to attack kidney, kidney cancer. And so, you know, ties into the fact that most, kidney, most cancers in general or el- in the elderly population, the reason why is well, our DNA goes bad. And so it's hard to reproduce those cells over time and not have a problem. But also the immune system is not, is not as good as it used to be. Elderly people get sick. Cancer is one of those things that the immune system is, is vital in preventing cancer every day. I mean, we're always in a state of cancer, non-cancer, cancer, non-cancer. People will, always are fighting cancer whether they know it or not. And are, that's every time you get a sunburn, you know, your response is to fight it off so you don't get melanoma. Eventually, patients that are light-skinned get cancer of the skin after they had repeated sun damage. We know it works, cause effect. And so with the immune system being so important and figuring out that traditional chemotherapy that just kills everything doesn't, doesn't really work on kidney cancer. Kidney cancer is fought by the body, the immune system. So if we can boost the arm of the immune system, that, that, that is helpful for, for, for the way kidney cells like to replicate in tumors, um, it's much, much better. And it's still not very good. But the sad thing is we're, we're not good at it because it's such a hard cancer to treat once it's advanced. So the name of the game is to, to remove it surgically. That's the mainstay of treatment. If we get it early, they're cured. We just don't have a good answer, such as things like testicular cancers, which are so treated with chemotherapy or radiation, it's, it's very rare to have a death from that um, nowadays where it was extremely popular to die of that disease 20 years ago. Dr. Bischoff, I'd love to ask you a little more about immunotherapy. We've talked about it on the show a couple times before. Um, and it, it is, from my understanding, still a very new field. Um, and what's been your experience kind of dealing with that and have doctors been responsive to immunotherapy trials? Is there any approved immunotherapy? Is it all in trial format? Um, and are there any side effects or is it like a lot of others that have, you know, minimal side effects due to simple immune system support as opposed to chemotherapy destruction of the body? No, it's, well, it's toxic. And so, you know, it's very toxic. I tell patients, you know, the, the therapy that we used to use, it's not as um, common anymore is like interleukin-based therapy. So I tell patients, you know, when you get the flu, the body's response to fighting the flu involves producing chemicals in the body that, that work as hormones and so and, and uh, fighting off cancer, well, viral cells. But interleukin is one of the, the um, cancer-fighting, viral-fighting uh, substances in the body, if you will, that make you feel like you have the flu. <laughs> so patients that get that therapy via an intravenous route, they feel like hell. They feel like they have the flu. So, so immune therapy it works for this a little bit better than, than chemotherapy, but other therapies that are sort of in the mix are called targeted therapies. And so not, not just immune therapies. We have sort of figured out with the cracking, so to speak, of the, of the DNA uh, blueprint, we sort of know the. I don't. <laughs> it's way above my head. I'm just a surgeon. But we, we know, um, someone knows, the pathways by which kidney cancers uh, can grow. They have to induce their own blood supply. They have to make a new blood supply that's not the way our normal body would work, but they sort of hijack all of our body's 
building materials to make their own blood supply. And so sometimes kidney cancers grow at such a fast rate, they, they grow faster than they can feed themselves with, with blood supply, and so they start auto-necrose, or they kill themselves off, and it usually happens in the center of the tumor. It looks like a black hole right in the center of a viable cancer. And so we think, gosh, that's not a nice cancer because it's growing so fast, it's choking off its own blood supply. And when you operate on these things, they're very difficult to, to, to operate sometimes because they bleed so much. And so knowing that that's how they, they are um, grossly when we see them and touch them, we figured out that, well, they, they have to use our normal pathway to make new blood vessels. So a lot of the therapies are, you know, we call them immune therapies, tar- targeted therapies, probably is more appropriate nowadays. And so targeted therapies hijack our body's ability to make a blood vessel. So it actually roadblocks, if you will, the normal way that the body would would be used to make a new blood vessel that the cancer has overtaken. So it sort of helps starve the cancer of its own building uh, building blocks or its own blueprints on how to survive. So targeted therapies are, are, are more the mainstay now to treat advanced renal cell cancer, and there's several that are good, Toracel, and there's a couple of other ones, um, to name a few that I can barely pronounce, but you don't have to be in a trial for those. There's some that are already first line available that we can you know, send patients. We work closely with uh, Austin Cancer Centers and Texas Oncology. When Texas Oncology is, is a bigger part of U.S. Oncology, which is sort of throughout the United States, but those trials that are set up, we can plug them directly in if there's a trial, if they fail the first one or two therapies that are approved for this, which work a lot better. I mean, I have patients that have metastatic kidney cancer that are still alive two or three years later where that wouldn't happen 10 years ago. Um, so we wanted to just bring the, bring the interview back to Lauren for a second because you were a young adult. You were 30. We are all about young adults and the unique, it's hard enough being 30 to begin with, and we joke about that, but... You know, your life was turned upside down because of this, and uh, I know Annie wanted to ask you about your life and fertility and all, all these specific things that are unique to being 30 that we deal with, that we've dealt with personally. How has this yeah. train wreck or um, fixed or changed your world? Let, let's hear about that. Um, well, actually, it kind of just... it. My life has tur- totally done a 360 after being diagnosed with cancer. Um, Being diagnosed with kidney cancer at this age was a lot, I don't don't want to say it's a lot different, but it was pretty different than a lot of the the other stories that I've discussed with a lot of the people in Vegas and, and the people that I meet with here in Austin because a lot of people kind of know they have cancer while they're in treatment. And when... In, with kidney cancer, they don't typically biopsy because they don't want to risk any metastasis whatsoever. They don't want to puncture the tumor and because all it takes is, like, one cell. I, I mean, Dr. Bischoff can correct me if I'm wrong on that. Um, but so they, they take it out and they tell you, you know, a probability. And my in my case, it was 95% uh, because it it lights up on on the MRI in a certain way that is different than than benign sometimes, and uh, mine was light mode <laughs> all over. So they they knew that I I had accepted the fact, but you know I mean of course my family is holding on to the, well you don't know yet, and 
So really, you don't you don't have a com- confirmed cancer diagnosis until your treatment is finished and your treatment, you know, uh, par- uh, parachute or whatever your treatment team, you know, disappears, and and so you're left kind of sitting. I don't know. I it's just I guess very alone, and um, because you go through a urologist uh, or you're uh, you're not really connected directly with cancer centers. So when I'm sitting in the waiting room, there's not a real big probability of me looking over and seeing somebody else like me. Um, It's mainly, like Dr. Bischoff said, older people. And uh, generally, you know, I'm in and I'm out and and then I go home and and there wasn't a whole lot around. So I, I really just hit the pavement and, and, was online all over, and that's how I just happened across stupid cancer. And I just, it, it was like I found the mecca <laughs> of what, everything that I was looking for. So, so when you were I was, you actually met another survivor who had the same type of kidney cancer you did. Well, Lauren, who was the I first did. person you met, I guess? Uh, Less important than what Annie did. That was <laughs> the first person I met in Vegas. <laughs> I walked straight up to him because I recognized his face from the the video, and I was nervous. And I was like, you know what? I, a familiar face, you can it it just is always helpful. There you go. <laughs> he spots the red hair from a mile away. Yeah, but most importantly, <laughs> you met another survivor. Yes, actually, you you meet one yeah. or two other RCTs there. Uh, there was one, um, and that was uh, Len, and he was a childhood kidney cancer survivor, but he had also had renal cell carcinoma later on. And um, and then, but uh, the very first kidney cancer survivor that I ever met, I actually met through Stupid Cancer page, and it is my friend Mallory, who will be on your show on July 14th, and we co-admin the Young Adult Kidney Cancer Survivors page on Facebook together which I started at the airport on my way back from Vegas. <laughs> and what's in, from my what's in your, your Facebook page? Uh, I'm sorry? How many what? people are in the page now? Um, I'm not sure. Mallory is so much better at me than that. I'll, I have to give her props. I mean, the, the most brilliant thing I did was ask her to help me. <laughs> nice. But um, <laughs> the uh, it, it's – I'd have to pull it up to look at it right now. But um, I know you guys wanted to talk about fertility. Um, I, I didn't, I've asked a lot. I've asked several of my doctors about uh, fertility in, in a kidney cancer, kidney cancer case, and generally it looks pretty good. And um, they, they really have, they haven't told me anything about conce- conception. I have been told um, I'm at risk for high-risk pregnancies. Uh, because, you know, of the damage to the kidneys, and that's pretty consistent with what I've seen. But I have seen uh, in my findings of looking for people online, that's my biggest hobby is trying to bring other kidney cancer survivors together because we are so rare. Um, I have seen there are people out there, and they are having babies, and they're having healthy babies, and, and it's very, very encouraging. So, Dr. Bischoff, back to you for a second, because, you know, obviously Lauren was a unique case in her age. You know, uh, it, it, it's, we don't expect 
physicians who deal with, uh, you know, sort of subspecialties to be aware of the fertility risks of, of cancer treatment. But if you're dealing with robotic surgery and typically there isn't necessarily need for, you know, a specific immunotherapy typically can be less toxic, but is that something that you are now aware of or were aware of prior to meeting Lauren in her unique situation? Well, you know, um, kidney can you know, the, the, the certain cancers that I treat, obviously, that, that are, we know patients are at risk for fertility issues, so we, and I was fortunate enough to be on muted, I guess, for, on the previous conversation with the other uh, survivor, and so when we deal with testicular cancer, where I know that's, that's what they're going to have, you know, we do sperm banking, that sort of thing, and we talk to them, because about 10 to 15 percent of patients that receive cytotoxic chemotherapy that we know targets rapidly growing rapidly developing developing cells such as you know sperm um, we we sperm bank but but the risk is is much uh, less overall than than you know that there's a better chance they'll have children than not so we still sperm bank and then we end up checking patients and so that's kind of what I deal with in addition to the cancers that I treat, I deal with general fertility issues uh, in men. And so a lot of times men get sent to me for those evaluations, but after a cancer um, diagnosis that would require chemotherapy that I know would, would impact fertility, we want to make sure we treat that on the front end, and then we, we verify, or we, we essentially, because you have to pay to sort of park your sperm in a sperm bank. And so every year, I forget how much it costs, a couple hundred dollars, so after 10 or 15 years, you know, people wonder, gosh, should I really do this? So, so we recheck them, and, 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 you know, once we can verify, gosh, you do have viable sperm and your counts, sperm counts are good, um, we give them the option of sort of like not continuing with sperm banking. Um, for females, it's, it's not, you know, as big of an issue um, for the most part. It can happen when women get treatment for cancers involving the genital tract and, and, you know, the ovaries and that sort of thing. Um, but they are born with all their, you know, their, 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 their eggs prior to, and so they're born that way and you lose them over time versus men continue to make them. So it's a little bit different scenario. So women can get, you know, obviously affected. In general, Lauren's risk, and I'm, I'm glad this comes up because, you know, we don't get to talk about all these nuances uh, and, and because we're not on her end, and that's that's troubling, but but it's eye-opening at the same time that Lauren's been such a pioneer, if you will, of, of her uh, illness and disease that's now cured. But in order to her, for her to help others, it's been amazing to to be able to work with her and watch her do what she's doing. But now I get to know that she was worried about that, which I don't think it's ever come up in our visits together because we're I'm more honed in on the the cancer part because I know that that her. Fertility issues down the road will be a, will be a non-issue because she has nothing to worry about. I know that, that that's the case, but any physician will say, "Oh, there's a risk because of whatever." But her kidneys are now functioning uh, on all you know six cylinders, if you will. So I would never see or expect any issue for her, which is great. Um, but, but those things we have no idea that sometimes patients are worrying about that. And I guess that you know it makes sense that that when you're 30 years old and in a new relationship. Um, you know, you're thinking about really that more than some of us have. Yeah. yeah. So it's got to be worrisome. And guys with testicular issues, it's such an expected thing because it's, you know, an expected thing. But but with women and, and kidney cancer, you know, it's Lauren's definitely not the first that I've operated on, but but definitely the most motivated 
to get the point out, and she's dropped off pamphlets for stupid cancer, which I had never heard of, um, because I'm usually dealing with you know a lot more uh, popular cancers, if you will, where, we, where there's established groups because it's so popular. But having this sort of avenue to, to sort of voice concerns and be an outlet and an inlet for patients to come in and, and learn because you're young, that's hugely important. Such a great concept. So I think Lauren's, you know, definitely her fears are warranted, but I, I'm, I'm glad I get to say that there's not going to be an issue um, <laughs> from from what she's had, and it's not we're not going to have to worry. Now, down the road, I mean, Lauren hit on a couple of things with, with risk factors, but there's ways that we, we haven't talked about yet, but but we could now in the air, um, you know, having her seen by a genetic, uh, a geneticist to sort of check to see on chromosome three, which is the chromosome that we know patients with, with renal cell carcinoma that present early. They have multiple tumors. I had a guy that I had to do staged. I did one side than the other, and tumors about the size of Lawrence that presented at the same time in each kidney in a bad location on both kidneys but we were able to do one kidney and do the other one six weeks later once I knew his kidney recovered completely, and he did, he's doing great. He's 52. It's got to be something wrong. And I told him we need to figure out he's had his children by now, and so we need to sort of screen, and, and so we sent him to a geneticist to, to see is there anything in the germline. Do we see something in your DNA that, that makes it not just a random chance? And if so, what do we do? Well, in Lauren's case, nothing's ever 100% except that we're going to die at some point. Other than that, all bets are off. So to, so to counsel someone to not having children, I'm wary of that, just from my own personal experience in my family. You, you, you uh, get yourself in a corner when you start going down that road. But to be able to say, look, Lauren, there is no genetic component that you're harboring that would increase your offspring's risk of having kidney cancer. And if there was a small risk, then we know, okay, well, yearly ultrasounds, that's a pretty easy thing to do in kids to make sure that if they ever have something, we catch it early when it's very treatable. So That is a, my, that is a real fear. I actually did see an yeah. oncologist today, actually, and, and discussed getting some genetic testing done, just to be sure, yep. because I am newly engaged, and, you know, we are discussing the aspects of building a family in the future years, and... I don't want to be terrified that I'm going to pass this on. Yep. Well, I, this has been, we only have a minute or so left. We're almost out of time. But, I, I hey, we, we like happy endings and good stories. We were fortunate enough to have uh, one of those. He, he uh, just had a baby. He was infertile from the age of nine, but he was tested, and it, miracles happened. This is really another example of, of uh, success stories with the right kinds of treatment, with doctors that are knowledgeable, they understand the disease, and they're all about the patient. Dr. Bishop, I commend you on having an attitude. It's rare. It should happen more often, but you are emblematic of the shift that we'd like to see in medicine. Um, I guess That's my, my exactly last exactly why I, I, I wanted to, to introduce you guys, because Dr. Bishop is an amazing doctor. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so let me, so Lawrence, uh, let me just wrap with one more question from Dr. Bishop. I, this is sort of a one-on-one question, of course, because a lot of people, you know, listen to the show. Kidneys are really important. We get that, but we have two because one's meant to fail. We have one as a backup, and is this sort of the natural way that that it's? Uh, what's your experience with that? How many people have to have a nephrectomy, and you know, with, with respect to cancer, with respect to disease? And, and you can live a full life with one kidney, correct? Right. 
So, <laughs> Lauren, you want me? You want to go for that one? I mean, is this is a hypothetical situation, or is no really right oh. answer, or wrong answer? I know my well, answer. <laughs> I can actually, I, I learned some interesting things about uh, kidneys because my uh, in-laws, I know, that my brother's wife's family, they all have polycystic kidney disease and um, her mother actually has a transplant and they actually don't remove the kidneys if they don't have to. Uh, they will actually just insert a kidney, the, a donor, in and not take the kidneys out because I think that the actual operation of removing the kidney is so hard on the body. Um, I don't know, Dr. Bischoff, am I in the ballpark here? Well, no, no, you are, but I think that your question, I think the way that I answer this for patients as well, someone mentioned God earlier. I think it might be you, so I'm, I'm not fearful of mentioning it on air. I believe in God, but I think that the kidneys are vital. You can't live without them. The most common you know, cause of death uh, for diabetics is being on dialysis. And so, so many people, you can't live on dialysis very long because we can't replicate what God intended to be <laughs> the real deal. And so kidney transplants are great, but it's it's tough. So my, my thing is if you got one banged up and you only had one, you're done. And so that's why yeah. we've tried to sort of go away from taking out a kidney. And Lauren, initially, her, her treatment, which she might not mention, her initial treatment for a kidney was to take the kidney out. And it's sort of got thrown in my ballpark because someone said, hey, I don't think this is the right thing because of her age, which the surgeon that had offered her the removal um, didn't know that you can sort of do this with her, her location. The tumor is a little bit more complex, and Lauren mentioned she had issues and, and problems afterwards, and that's directly related to, to how her tumor was. But, but it's more to the point that she needs that kidney, and so we were going to do everything to save it. But if you were only born with one, you don't have a backup, but, but you only need one. It's the truth. And so when someone has a big enough tumor that we are not lucky enough to catch it because they don't have a gallbladder issue like Lauren did, um, that was her, her saving grace. I think that, you know, there, there was, a, I think, a bigger purpose for Lauren, and she's obviously living up to what <laughs> I would have imagined for her is that she, she's doing everything she could possibly do, and, and she obviously likes doing it. But the reason why she had gallbladder issues and that led to her diagnosis and that led her to my treatment path to, to figure it out, I think it all happens for a reason. But I think with the kidney being so important, you can give it to someone else. You can give it to, you know, I, we, I used to do transplants in training and didn't like doing it, but, but that's the beauty of a kidney is you can give it to someone in your family, which most of the time you can, um, especially if you have a twin. <laughs> but you only need one, but if you only have one and something happens, you know, we, we counsel against, you know, sports that are uh, aggressive like football. If you only have one kidney, you shouldn't do it because if you bust your kidney up, you're done. <laughs> so I think that that's the reason is it's so important we need a backup. Well, again, I, yeah, I, I really, also really had a, uh, I'm sorry, we, we have to end the show. We're running a little over time now, but I, I really did want to thank, thank you, you both for, for sharing your story and coming on the air. Uh, we've been talking with Lauren Hassel. She is a stage one renal cell carcinoma survivor, six months post-op, and I think you said you're getting married. Is that true? Getting I engaged? Next June. Uh, yeah, no, we're well, engaged. Uh, we're getting married. Oh. <laughs> That's awesome. And Dr. Carl Bischoff, who is a physician at Urology Austin, uh, specializing in uh, your general um, urologic oncology. So thank you both for joining us on our very first show on renal cell carcinoma. You guys rock. Take thank care. God bless. Thank you for having one. Thank you for having Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, Kenny, prepare to activate. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets.
You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you got it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show. Our 313th broadcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. I'd like to thank our guests tonight, Stephen Robinson, Lauren Hassel, and Dr. Carl Bischoff. We're off next week, returning Monday, July 14th, the great show on Cancer Retreat. Life is crazy enough without cancer. Toss that in, especially for young adults, and it's a big mess. Q2, Q2 incredible nonprofits for knowing about the offer experiential outdoor retreats for young adults facing cancer. Join us to speak with Nancy and Colin Farrow, co-founders of Epic Experience, and Victor, David Victorson, PhD and co-founder of True North Treks, an associate professor in medical social sciences, Northwestern University, Feinberg School of Medicine, and Survivor Spotlight on Mallory Huge. Subscribe to our show anytime for free on iHeartRadio Talk, iTunes, Podcasts, and Blog Talk Radio. And check us out anytime at stupidcancer.org and stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of Annie Goodman, Kenny Kane, Marine Sweet, Mallory Rivera, myself, and the whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here in two weeks. Good night. Good night, everybody. Good night.